Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 21. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. You know, early in the worship service, earlier in this worship service, we together recited the Lord's Prayer. It's something we do every Lord's Day. It's obviously an important prayer. It is a template that Jesus gave when he taught his disciples how they ought to pray. And and Jordan did this in Sunday school, and I've been doing this on Wednesday night for the past couple months. But it's very informative how Jesus structures the prayer. When you look at the first half of the Lord's Prayer, it's all about God. And when you look at the second half, it's about us. In the first half, you've got three petitions, which are God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And then in the second half, there's a focus on our good. The first is on God's glory, his name, kingdom, and will. And the second half is our good, our daily bread, our forgiveness, and our being kept from evil. And this is an example of of how we as God's people are to pray. And it's important to note that before we get to any personal requests, we are to plead that His name be hallowed, His kingdom come, and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I was reminded of the Lord's Prayer as I began to assemble this sermon. I was reminded specifically of the line, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think if we're honest, we can acknowledge that a lot of the time, maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time, we pray because we want our will to be done. Our goal in prayer is, is to get God in line with what we, he's ever here. We want him in line with what we want. And kind of like the genie in the lamp. You rub the lamp, the genie comes out, and he grants you wishes. Is that how we view prayer? What we're taught in the Lord's Prayer is that In Christian prayer, the goal isn't to get God in line with our will. It's that we might be brought in line with his will. Right? Jesus teaches us to ask God, God, would you bring the world and everything in it, including ourselves, in line with your will and what you want? Now, I bring this up because of a line that we're going to read in verse 14. There's a group of Christians who are frustrated and they're grieved and they're worried about Paul's future. They're frustrated because they aren't getting what they want and so they throw up their hands and say, let the will of the Lord be done. I'll remind you that Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. He said farewell to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, and now in chapter 21, he is on the way. 
His third missionary journey has come to a close. And he's supposed to return to Jerusalem, even though he knows doing so will prove very dangerous. But he also knew that this was God's will for him. In the previous chapter, Paul said, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. He knew what God wanted him to do. And he knew that doing anything else would be an act of stubborn rebellion. To do anything else would be acting like Jonah. And Paul has no intention of being Jonah. He is very aware that he, is no, he, he cannot outrun the will of God. But what Paul has to face in these verses is other believers who greatly loved him trying to talk him out of it. Right? That's, that's what we're going to see in this text, and it's going to get stronger the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Right? He's, he's going to be tempted to turn aside and preserve his life maximize his years, and go pastor a quiet, loving church in a less dangerous town. And I'm sure all of Paul's friends had all sorts of pious reasons that they didn't want him to go. I'm sure they were thinking, Paul, don't do it. Think of all you can do for the kingdom as a free man as opposed to an imprisoned man. Paul, the church needs you. Don't rashly throw your life away. Turn aside. Paul will face that temptation every step of his journey. In our passage, we'll see Christians plead and say to Paul, don't do this. Don't turn aside. Don't go there. What these believers don't realize is that they're asking that their will be done. They wanted Paul, their dear friend, who they loved. They wanted him to conform to their will, not God's will. And yet Paul, courageously and painfully, will continue on until he finally makes it back to Jerusalem. But it's not simply that he's just being a good soldier who's following the orders of his superior. Paul also knew that his superior is a God who works in mysterious ways. He's a God whose ways seem totally backward and foolish to the natural mind. He's a God who revealed his divine power in the weakness of the cross. You know, what was seen as a defeat in the eyes of the world was actually the conquest of death and all the powers of evil. So my goal in this sermon is simple, and it's to encourage you to say with Paul and with the Lord Jesus, not my will but your will be done. 
And I don't want us to say it just as mindless robotic servants, but as those who trust that his way is better. His way, though the though it's seen as foolishness by arrogant intellectuals and it's offensive to the morally self-righteous, his way is always better. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that it would be sown this morning on fertile ground and that it would take root wherever it lands and that it would be used uh, to bring about a bountiful harvest that might bring glory and honor to your name and more men and women and boys and girls who come to know you and trust you. Would you do this uh, for your glory and for the good of your people? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Right, our text is Acts 21, going to read 1 through 16. And when we parted from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed And said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down to Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God 
stands forever. So we're going to look at this journey that Paul makes from Miletus to Caesarea. Caesarea, by by the way, is the nearest port city to Jerusalem. Paul will begin on a smaller boat that's going to hug the coast. He'll go from Miletus to Kos and from Kos to Rhodes. Um, Some historical information if you're interested. Uh, Kos was the home of the most prestigious medical school in the ancient world. It's founded by a man. Maybe you've heard of him. His name, I'm going to mess it up, Hippocrates, Hippocrates, that guy. Uh, we all know the oath that bears his name. Well, that's Paul briefly stops there and then goes on to Rhodes. Rhodes is home or was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus, this gigantic statue. I think by this time it had fallen down during an earthquake, but that's Rhodes. Uh, From there, Paul landed in Patera and connects on to a larger ship that would be equipped to make the 400-mile journey to Tyre. Well, once they reach Tyre, Paul has a seven-day layover where this uh, ship uh, delivers the cargo it was carrying and then receives new cargo. And to be honest, I, I found this a bit confusing because I've been following this boat trip in my atlas. And Tyre is not far from Caesarea. And uh, I imagine Paul could have walked there in one week's time, but he didn't. Um, Instead, during this layover, he goes looking for other Christians. And he finds them. And here's the first instance of believers attempting to dissuade Paul from going on to Jerusalem. Look at the second half of verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. What do we do with that? Paul said in the previous chapter, he says, The Holy Spirit is constraining me to go to Jerusalem. And here are believers entire through the Spirit telling Paul to do the exact opposite. There's really only one thing that can explain this. And it's that the Holy Spirit was not communicating to the believers that Paul was forbidden to go to Jerusalem. We've seen this before. In Acts 16... Paul wants to go down to a region, a region of modern-day Turkey called Asia, where Ephesus was. That's where he wanted to go. And in Acts 16, we're told he was forbidden by the Spirit to go there. Instead, he had the vision of the Macedonian man pleading for help, and he gets on board a boat and crosses over to Macedonia and goes to towns like uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Right? That's an instance of Paul being commanded, do not go there. That's not happening here. Instead, the Spirit is communicating information to these believers. The Spirit is telling them, Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem. And they did not want that to happen. And so they said, don't go. I mean, this, this has to be it. You've got the option of the Holy Spirit contradicting himself 
which I will not accept. You could say, well, Paul is making a massive mistake and he's being cavalier and rushing headlong into danger. Again, I'm not accepting that. Or the Holy Spirit told them that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem. And so the implication they draw is, well, then he shouldn't go. I feel like this is a safe position to be. This is also the position John Calvin holds. He says, quote, The Lord showed these brothers what would happen, but they did not know what was expedient or what Paul's calling required. Right? They, they saw the danger in Paul's future. They assumed the danger was avoidable. And they, presumed, well, they, they assumed it was not precisely where they wanted Paul, where God wanted Paul to be. Before I get to the application, let's go on to verses 7 through 12. From there, Paul has a brief stop in Ptolemais, and then the next day arrives in Caesarea, and he's finished with boat travel for the present. Then in Caesarea, Paul enters the house of Philip the Evangelist. This is the same Philip who was chosen as one of the six, I'm, I'm sorry, one of the seven back in Acts 6. Now, this is the same Philip who shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. And now it is some 20 years later and he's married and has four daughters. And Luke says that they prophesied. What do we do with that? Well, prophecy in the early church took two forms. You had what we normally think of when you hear the word prophecy, which is predicting future events. And then you also had prophecy, which served as another word for evangelism. Well, so you could say sharing the gospel is referred to as prophesying. And we have both of those in this chapter. Luke records that Paul enters the house of Philip the Evangelist, a man who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And Luke doesn't tell us any future events these young women predict. And so it's likely their prophesying was their evangelizing, just like their father. So this is a family ministry. Then you have Agabus, Uh, Agabus the prophet. We saw him, I don't know know if you remember, back in Acts 11 he's mentioned. He predicts a coming famine. Well, he shows up again. And he comes to Caesarea and uh, he predicts future events. And he does so with an object lesson. You know, this is what the Old Testament prophets did all the time. They would uh, run around without clothes on, or they would cook their food over dung, or they would make a model of Jerusalem and have it destroyed. All these object lessons to show what was coming. Well, Agabus does something similar. He takes Paul's belt, ties up his hands and feet, and says... Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man 
who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So again, notice, Agabus does not communicate whether or not Paul should go to Jerusalem. He just gives them a vivid picture of what's going to happen once Paul gets there. And again, most everyone present assumes this means that Paul should not go. I mean, we're told that Luke even joins in. Verse 12, he says, we, when we heard this, we would include Luke. We is Paul's traveling companions. When we heard this and those people present in Philip's house, we urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Just imagine, can you imagine being Paul in that moment? Seeing Agabus tied up with your own belt and then hearing him say, so shall it be for the one who owns this belt. And then having all the believers, all your traveling companions, all your friends say, Paul, don't do this. This is a huge mistake. It's not the right time. Wait. Don't go to Jerusalem right now. I mean, I imagine the pressure on him would have been immense. And he gives us some insight of what's going on in his heart in verse 13. I mean, how how many times would you imagine to hear the Apostle Paul say, you're breaking my heart. That's exactly what he says. He says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? And again, he's not being just an insensitive robot. He's admitting that they are making this very difficult for him. Their love and their care deeply moved him and his soul is grieved. And yet he has to keep going. He couldn't turn away. And he says, I am ready not only to be incarcerated, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's heart wasn't grieved that he would be bound. I mean, that's old news. He'd been ready to suffer and die since his first missionary journey. I mean, like, he'd already been stoned nearly to death. What grieved him were these friends attempting to divert him away from the clear will of God. There's no talking him out of it. And so what's their response? Verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. I imagine those words were spoken in frustration And yet they're true. Paul would not turn aside. He would go on to Jerusalem. Now some application. First is a warning for us. We need to be very cautious before we tell someone else what we think God's will is for their life. 
these believers brought Paul much grief. They broke his heart. They tempted him to turn aside from what the Spirit was compelling him to do. And we should learn something from their mistake. Now, this isn't to say we shouldn't hold one another accountable. We should. This isn't to say that we shouldn't go after a brother or sister when they wander off and fall into blatant sin. We should. But we need to be very careful. I need to be very careful that I do not declare to my neighbor and say to them, hey, I know God's will for your life. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, Paul's acquaintances demonstrated the all too common inclination of being quick to know God's will for someone else. We need to avoid making snap judgments. What matters is God's will for us, not what others think we should do. Very, it is so easy for us to believe that we know what is right for someone else. I mean, there are, there are so many examples. We, we'll, we'll look at our neighbor and say, you don't need to take that job. You need to take this job. This is how you should parent. This is how you should fill in the blank. We need to be very careful about making quick judgments and telling our neighbor that you know God's will for them. Because if the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, if he can get this wrong, then so can you and I. You might not know what's best for another person. And very seldom do you know the full background and reasoning behind the decisions a person makes. And so I would say, worry about your own obedience to the Lord. Not what you think others should do. Because ultimately, it's between them and the Lord, and they will have to give an account. As will you. And so be cautious before telling your neighbor that you know God's will for their life. Second, we need to beware the error of believing that obedience to God means it, it means that we won't suffer. The error of thinking, if I'm obedient to God, everything will be great. God's will for me is to be happy and whole and healthy. I mean, isn't this what the believers in Acts 21 are doing? Paul, you can't go to Jerusalem. If you do, you'll suffer, you'll be imprisoned, you might even die. Surely that can't be God's will for you. I mean, this is the natural human response. Well, God wants me to be happy. This can't be His will for me because I'm not happy. And to think like that, it's not the commandments of God that are driving you, but rather 
your own self-preservation and idolatry of personal happiness, comfort, and ease. Paul knew God's command on his life. He said, my will for you, Paul, is that you go to Jerusalem and experience imprisonment and affliction and suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus and for his gospel. That is my will for you. We have to get over this idea that, well, God's will for my life could never include pain and suffering and sickness. Just think of John the Baptist. I mean, think of how his ministry ends. You have a, a, a teenage girl who goes in before the king and all his counselors and advisors, and she does probably a very lewd dance. And the king is impressed, and he's like, oh, that, that's great. Ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. So she goes to her mother, this bitter, vindictive woman who hates John because he had the audacity of criticizing her marriage. And she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I mean, what do you think was going through John's mind when the soldier shows up at the door of his cell with an axe? I mean, what would I be thinking? Lord, no. No. This can't be your will. This can't be how it ends. This doesn't make sense. We need to rid ourselves of the notion that obedience to God and his will for our lives means we won't suffer. And yet our suffering is only for a time. As Paul himself will say, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And Paul is not speaking tongue-in-cheek. He'd already been stoned when he wrote that. He'd already been beaten and driven out of towns and been plotted against. He'd experienced all of that, and yet he could write this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's how I want to end. When we look at verse 13, Paul says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. How can Paul say that? Again, Is it simply him being a good soldier following orders? I mean, I could send you out of here saying, be like Paul. Go be a good soldier. Follow orders. Be obedient to the Lord. Is it simply that he's embraced life in this veil of tears? Again, I could send you out of here saying, this is it for the moment. This, it's a light momentary affliction. Just wait and be patient. I think Paul is able to say this because of something more than that. Both of those two are important, but there's something more. Paul remembers that someone else 
made this same journey to Jerusalem. And this person also knew that he would be delivered over to the hands of his enemies. And he would be arrested and beaten and he would suffer and die and he would rise on the third day. And his closest friends as well would try to talk him out of it. They would say, I'm sorry, he would say, I've got to go and die. And his friends would say, stop talking like that. That can't be. Who was that man? He was the Lord Jesus. And like Paul, Christ knew suffering was coming. Paul says, you're breaking my heart. Well, in the garden, Christ is sweating blood because he knew what was coming. The atonement, full atonement for the sin of every man, woman, girl, and boy who would ever look to him and trust in him alone for salvation. He knew that he would face the full and unfiltered wrath of God in the place of his sinful people. And he knew that he would have to drink that terrible cup to the dregs. And Paul knew this. Paul knew that because Because Christ drank the cup, he wouldn't have to. And so the worst case scenario for Paul going to Jerusalem was that his enemies kill him and send him immediately into the presence of the same one who loved Paul so much that he died for Paul when Paul was still his enemy. That's the worst they could do in Jerusalem. The worst they could do was send Paul straight to his greatest friend. It wasn't that Paul was being an ascetic and sacrificing his life. It wasn't that Paul was just being a good soldier following orders. No, he was convinced that to depart and be with Christ was far better. Because every drop of the holy wrath of God that should fall upon him had already fallen Upon Jesus. And so there was no condemnation awaiting him upon his death. Jesus had already been condemned. There was no judgment awaiting him after his death. His sin had been taken from him as far as the east is from the west. Paul trusted that the hard work had already been accomplished by one who is infinitely stronger and greater, by one who is the author and perfecter of his faith. That's what drove him on. That's what held him on this course. That's what made him fearless about returning to Jerusalem. May the Spirit of God work that same confidence and peace in our own hearts. So that we, like Martin Luther, could say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still 
His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father God, in seeing your Son, would we have peace? In seeing your Son, would we have an unshakable confidence that our acceptance and our life and our good and our future does not depend on us? And our obedience and our determination to stay the course and our determination that in the midst of peer pressure, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm supposed to do. We remember that our standing is based on one who went before and was totally alone and suffered so that we might never have to. Father, in seeing him, would we be changed? In seeing him, would we also be overcome with a desire to mimic him and give ourselves away as well? In looking and seeing him, would our hearts be inflamed? Would we love our neighbor Would we be able to finally rest? Father, would you help us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.